as you can see, this, this will kind of be our, our theme for the entire class. And that question seems awful simple, doesn't it? How should we teach Christ from all the scriptures? And, uh, and Eric gave a great answer. He said, uh, with authority. <laughs> and I wish it was that simple. I really do. I wish everybody uh, agreed. I wish as Christians we could all agree on exactly how it is we teach Christ from all the scriptures. I will say this up front. There are many different views on this. Um, and so I'm giving you the perspective that I hold and, and I'll give you, you'll see uh, some of the resources I've given you will tip your hand to other guys in our world today who hold the perspective. But there are a vast number. I was talking with Aaron uh, just this week when we were deciding whether to do this at 9 o'clock in here or not. And um, just as a uh, biblical perspective, but, the, but not, not the same perspective that I come at it. You, you can listen to grace to you. Uh, John MacArthur right now is teaching uh, uh, every Sunday morning, I guess, the way he's opened it up, unless the Lord lets him live to be 120 or something. Uh, he's going to preach the rest of his career, uh, preaching. and the title of his sermon series is Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And he's going to go through the Old Testament, and he's going to preach the Old Testament in a, in a way, in his methodology. Now, his methodology and mine will be uh, somewhat different, though I give him credit for being very biblical, obviously. Um, but it's a different perspective. And I think as we go through the nine weeks, you'll see why there's differences. Right now, you may be saying, well, if they're both biblical, then how can they be different? Well, it's, I'll use this with fear and trepidation because it may stir something in you, because it's, the, it's kind of like, it's a lot like eschatology. When you talk about the, the study of the end of all things, there are biblical men that hold various positions on that. And they all come at it from a biblical perspective. They all come at it from a biblical perspective. Just as a point of reference as we get started, I want to take you to two New Testament passages. John chapter 5. And then Luke, uh, we'll go to Luke in just a moment. But first, John chapter 5, Jesus is teaching. He's been challenged by his uh, opponents, so to speak, about where he has the right to do the things he's doing. He's healing people. He's teaching with authority. And so now he's being, he's being put on the question stand. And um, if we look at John chapter 5 and begin... At verse, uh, just for time's sake, let's begin at verse 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he's giving them credit. They study the Old Testament. And because they believe in the Old Testament, they receive eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You study the scriptures as Pharisees, thinking you get eternal life from them, and the Old Testament bears witness about me. That's, that's, that's Jesus' conclusion. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay, skip down for time's sake again. To verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you. Okay? I won't accuse you, he says. <clears throat> you, uh, 
there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So again, now we hone in. They truly have studied the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That is their cornerstone. That's their, that's their most foundational teaching. And you, it's not me, Jesus says. When you come to judgment, it's not me that will accuse you. Moses will accuse you. Why? If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Often we make the mistake when we go to the Old Testament that Jesus is contained, or the word about Jesus is only contained in direct prophetic words. Predictions of his birth, his life, and his death, and his resurrection. The little glimpses, we might call them, of New Testament theology. But the reality is that from Genesis to Malachi, from verse to verse, chapter to chapter, book to book, God is building for us the, a stage on which Jesus will walk onto. And the whole point of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, is that you know me. That means when you're in the book of Leviticus, you're to find Christ. If you don't find Christ, then you're like a Pharisee. You're searching the Scripture looking for uh, Christ, or looking for eternal life, but rejecting the one who gives you life. So, we have to be careful as we study. Paul. Right. Absolutely. And so, it's, it, it's with this verse in mind, and then also turn, if you will, to cha Luke chapter uh, 24. After the resurrection, this, this is a familiar passage, but I just want to read it with you. The, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're walking and they're talking about the things that are going on in Jerusalem in that day, the death, the burial, and now this supposed resurrection. They've heard it, but they've not seen Jesus. And so, while they're walking and talking about these things, Jesus comes up, up on them. He walks up on them, and he begins to ask them what you're talking about. And, and they begin to explain to him. You know, it's, it's that famous statement when he says, what things are you talking about? And, it, and it's almost like they're saying, where are you being on Mars? You haven't heard? The whole city knows what's going on these days, man. Jesus, after asking that and getting their response says this in verse 25, O foolish one, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now that, that would seem to indicate, if we just stop there, again, it's this prophetic word that taught, but let's keep reading. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And what Jesus did is he said, you haven't studied well. Some, something's askew in your teaching. Let me, let me correct your flaw. And he started in Moses, the first five books again, and he went through all the scripture. That, that phrase and, those, and that way of speaking is, is clear to say he taught in all types of scriptures, all places in the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't mean he went verse by verse. Okay, It's a seven-mile journey. So it's, it's the cliff notes. 
But he, from, he drew out passages, exemplary passages, I believe, on, in this discussion, from all the Scripture. That means in the historical books, in the Pentateuch, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the, in, in the writings, you know, Psalms, Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs. He pulled things out and showed them that this was all foretold to you. This, whole, this is the whole point of the Old Testament. He comes again and says the same thing to his disciples. He appeared to the disciples, and he talks with them. Um, they're all blown away. And then he starts in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He again grabs all of the, this is the way you talk about the whole Bible in their day. The law, the prophets, the writings. That was, those are the categories. The historical books were put into the books of the prophets. Sometimes they were attached to the Pentateuch, but they, they were just gathered in. So here he's talking again, clearly saying all of the Scripture is written about me. And then he says in verse 45, he opened their minds. That's the key thing for us to remember, to understand the Scriptures. In other words... In study of the Bible, there are two things necessary. There, are, there is the willingness on the human part to understand, and there's the supernatural power that is necessary and required that you understand. You know, people often ask, how can a professor at JSU study the Bible? There, there are guys up there that study the Bible as a piece of literature, and they're never converted because they don't have one of those two things or both. How come my friend can read the Bible and come up with completely different ideas about things than I do? Well, it could be one of those two things, any of those two things or both. Maybe they don't want to understand it, they're stiff-necked, or maybe they want to understand it, but the Spirit of God has not yet moved into their heart and mind. 2 Corinthians teaches us clearly, Paul says, that the things that are spiritual cannot be apprised by the physical man, by the natural sense. Things that are not natural to us have supernatural, we have to have supernatural help. So, that's kind of the overview. Now we step into the more specific, how do we teach and, and Christ from all the scripture? Well, the first thing we have to have, and it's one of the biggest weaknesses, I, I polled uh, seven friends that went to five different seminaries, and every one of them said the weakest teaching they got was on biblical theology. That was the weakest. It, in my experience, it was about two weeks. <laughs> it was about two weeks. It was stuck in the middle of, uh, of another class, and it was just kind of a two-week little lecture about it. It's one of the weakest things, and I think that's why we're so weak on Christ throughout the Scripture. What I hope to help you understand is that the discipline of biblical theology and the concepts we gain from it will show the vital connection between biblical theology and Christocentric preaching. So first we need to define, and, and um, I just brought these so you could see them and not, not, not thinking you're going to go out and buy them today. Um, but these are some of the classic works. This, this work is kind of the foundational to all the new stuff that's being written. Gerhardus Voss wrote years ago, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testament. And uh, it, he, well, not to get too much into Voss, but Voss was a, 
uh, clear thinker. He was the president. Uh, I mean, he was the president of a theology school and was asked to become the chair of biblical theology at Princeton University back in the early, the late 1800s. And so here we have a man who was one of the foremost thinkers in his day. Listen to his definition of biblical theology. It's a branch of theology which deals with the process of self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. Biblical theology is the study of what God has revealed about himself, but it studies it from the angle of the organic nature of the Bible. In other words, the Bible itself is a book, the whole Bible. And so all biblical theology is trying to do is, is look through that prism, through that ground, and see what God has revealed about himself as he revealed it in the Scripture. As he revealed it in the scripture, Graham Goldsworthy, <clears throat> all these guys have uh, essentially the same definition almost. And the reason is, is because they all build off what Gerardus Voss has done in his study. It's still the foundation work. It is not, I will warn you, it is not for the faint of heart. He is a brilliant man. He, I've read a short little uh, collection of his sermons from the chapel at Princeton and it's overwhelming. I read one sermon and think, they got this in one sitting, verbally. We've gotten dumber over time. <laughs> the guys I went to seminary with, if he'd preached like that, we'd have been twiddling our thumbs playing tic-tac-toe. Um, so I'm just saying, he's, he's a heavyweight. Graham Goldsworthy builds off his definition, adding only one facet, and that is that we do this study of biblical theology chronologically, and from the perspective of Christ. So what you do first is build the organic teachings of the Scripture. You just go through, working through, and I'll differentiate between this and other branches of theology, and it'll be even clearer for you. But just work through the Scriptures, and you see how God revealed Himself. So He's revealing Himself in Genesis. He's adding to that in Deuteronomy. He's adding to that in the Psalms. He's adding to that in Mark. He's showing us more about Himself as we go, as we move. And in biblical theology, we're just studying it that way. Graham Goldsworthy says we can do that chronologically, and then also through the prism of Jesus Christ. So we can then, after understanding the basis, we always look back through Christ to understand the, the particulars in our day. And so these definitions are very close. Why is it significant for us to be talking about? And what, did, what happened in biblical theology? When did it start? That's a, that's a big um, uh, debate. Many will pin that with a liberal theologian named Gobbler, Gabler, however you say his name, he's a German, in higher criticism. That in the, in the early 20th century, the higher critics invented biblical theology, and their intent was to destroy the reliability of the Scripture and to show it to be untrustworthy. But the problem with that view is that if you go back into the, into the Scriptures themselves, it, it becomes even more clear that that's what is happening. When did biblical theology, if you ask me, when did biblical theology begin? And I would say it began at Mount Sinai when God began to write the Word of God on the Ten Commandments. God, in other words, was the first to write Scripture. And once having written it, Moses then came down off the mountain and wrote Scripture and wrote down the oral history that had been passed down by the people all these years. He, he collected it into a group of writings known as the Pentateuch. And I would say biblical theology began with Moses. Why? 
Because when you read, and it's, you have to do this uh, to c- really understand it. Take time to read the first five books of the Bible with the question in mind, where is Christ in these books? Where is Jesus? Can I see Christ at all in these books? And what you'll find are, is a clearly marked trail leading you, pointing you forward in the Scriptures. It won't tell you all there is to know about the coming Christ, but it will tell you all you need to know to take the next step on the journey. In other words, Moses was the first biblical theologian. Moses was, not some man in the 20th century. We know that because men like Justin Martyr and Ignatius were biblical theologians. They knew nothing of systematic theology or practical theology or exegetical theology, as it's called today, and all these different theologies. They were biblical theologians. In other words, they took the Bible and they took it as it came as a revelation from God through time and culture, and they looked at it through the prism of Jesus Christ, everything through the prism of Jesus Christ. So the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, others like them, Polycarp, one of the students of John, um, his writings, we still have them. And it's clear that this is exactly the way they're teaching the Bible. is the way that Paul taught it and Peter taught it and Moses wrote it years and centuries and millennia before. So biblical theology didn't come into existence in the 19th and 20th century, but in the 19th and 20th century, biblical theology was hijacked by liberals wanting to disprove the Bible. And so... During the 19th, 20th century, no one wanted to talk about biblical theology except uh, Gerhardus Voss and a few other men who were trying to rescue it, pull it back out of the doldrums of higher criticism. It had kind of been put on the shelf in the conservative church. They had moved on. If you read divines in the 19th century, you'll find mostly systematic theologians. And we're going to talk about why that is. But the the systematic theology really took off in 19th, 20th century. Now, it's been revived in latter years by scholars like Dennis Johnson, Graham Goldsworthy, um, R.C. Sproul, men who we, uh, some we know, some we don't, who have built off, as I said earlier, built off of what Voss began in in bringing us back to the biblical understanding of God's revelation. So what do we need to know about biblical theology? It is understanding God's revelation as he wrote it through his, his, uh, his inspired writers through the prism of Christ. Those are the two things you need to hold on to. Now, why would we do that? Why, why would we put everything through the prism of Christ? And that's essentially where the difference in a guy like uh, Dr. MacArthur and myself would be. And I've already told you, I respect him. I've encouraged you to listen to his sermons. I think they will build and help you in many points of, of, light, of like, uh, like points, and there'll be a few contrasts, okay? But the, but the thing that happens is, so often we study the Old Testament on its, on its terms only. We study the Old Testament on its terms only. And what I mean by that is that rabbis could attend our services if, they were, if you could find some conservative uh, Old Testament believing rabbis in our day, and, and they were sitting in the sermon of the Old Testament, when you take it on its own terms only, and you stop there, they're comfortable. As a matter of fact, during the sermon, they're wondering, why is this person in the Christian church? 
There's one step left. See, that's taking God's revelation as he revealed it. But it's not putting it through the prism of Jesus Christ. There's the rub. That rabbi should not get up out of a ser sermon on 1 Samuel chapter 8, walk through the back door, shake your hand, and say, that was an excellent sermon. He should leave angry. Or he should leave convicted and converted. The problem is, Christ changed everything. He changed the way we understand Scripture. He changed the, the ability for us to understand all that was in Scripture. And it's going to sound crazy, but listen, I do believe I understand, not because I'm better or smarter, but I do believe I understand the book of Deuteronomy better than Moses understood it or the people on the plains of Moab. That's not arrogance. That's believing Luke 24. They, in their time, do, did not have all that we have revealed to us. If you don't know it better than they know it, then you've misunderstood the Scripture, Jesus says. You've lost, in your search for eternal life, you've lost perspective, therefore you don't have eternal life. We should understand it more completely because God didn't stop in Deuteronomy. He continued to reveal Himself. And all of that weighs back into our understanding. And that's really what we're going to be spending this time on, is how do I read my Bible, study my Bible, and present the Bible to my children, to my friends, and to congregations like this, and do it Christocentrically without destroying the Bible? And that, that's, um, that's something we will deal with. Questions? Yes. If you don't understand the Bible as a Christocentric doctrine, then you don't, it's impossible to have eternal life. If you don't look to the Bible as the Christocentric document, it is. What happens in that, and see, I would say Dr. MacArthur has that understanding. He approaches it differently than I do, but he has that understanding. You're going to see that. I, I can already tip you off, and you'll especially want to listen to his sermons on Joseph. When he begins to teach, if he, if he does do that in this series, because I've heard him talk about it at conferences, different places, it will be fascinating to you the way he draws parallels between Joseph and Christ. He does it similarly to the way I would. Okay? So the problem is, if you become tight-scoped looking at the Old Testament, if you just hold on to, we're just going to mind our P's and Q's in a sense, in the Old Testament, you're almost forced into Phariseeism. That's what they did. Pharisees got stuck in the past. They saw that the writings as simply that. This is God revealed to us and, and no more. And so when Christ came on the scene, it was, it was an interruption to their theology. It was a break in their theology because they were, they were measuring out cumin but not looking for, for Christ. They were going to the temple regularly, in keeping with the law, but not with a heart that was focused towards Christ. I would say even a Hebrew parent, <clears throat> a Hebrew parent that was a, that, was a, that was a believer in their day, when they were leading the lamb to slaughter, was telling their children of the coming sacrifice. This lamb is what God has given us today, but it is not enough. Don't place your hope in a lamb. Place your hope in God. 
Well, why are we taking the lamb to slaughter, Daddy? Because God has commanded that his people do this in our day, but there's a better sacrifice coming. There's a better sacrifice coming. When is he coming? I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming because God has promised that he will come. They would have taught deeply. They would have taught truly. And there are many unconverted people in the Old Testament. Many unconverted people in that system. Because they were, again, focused on the system without the promise of a Messiah. Just the system itself. That's what I mean when I say that. Not that you have to hold my view to be a Christian, but rather you have to have a view of Christ in the Old Testament. Biblical theology has to be compared to the other types of theology quickly. I don't want to bore you with this, but quickly run through this. What's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology? Biblical theology takes the organic view, looks at the Scriptures, and finds God's revelation as He revealed Himself and puts it through the prism of Christ as the last step. Systematic theology takes a topic and goes through all the Scripture and organizes all the Scripture under the topic. So... It's, it's a great tool for study. We need to study systematic theology because when your friend asks you about hell, you don't have time to begin in Genesis and read all the way through the Bible and point out each verse as you go through the Bible that way in hell. You would be teaching them until they die, maybe. You need to be able to go to your shelf and pull off one book or one volume, flip to the index and see all the Scripture on hell in the Bible. Now we can do a Bible study on hell if that's what it needs to be talked about. Or... Uh, salvation by faith alone or all of, the, all of the doctrines that are on our pulpit in some way are systematic theology being played out in front of you. We do not deny systematic theology. It's one tool in the tool bag of understanding the Bible. You need a good systematic theology. It's categorizing and organizing information under the categories. In some ways, you, you do systematic theology every day. Every day. And that is that when you think of God, how do you think of Him? In what form do you think of Him? Singular or plural? Yes. And if you think of Him as both, then you do systematic theology. Because in what verse of the Bible does the word Trinity appear? Nowhere. The idea is everywhere, but the word itself is nowhere, and the word itself is systematic theology. Trinity. The word is a shorthand way of saying what we know from all of the Bible in an organized way. We see him as one God in three persons, and we shorten that to say Trinity. Okay? Okay? So, systematic theology is not far from you. When you talk about incarnation, the incarnation of Christ, you again begin to think systematically about that. God is, uh, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. But there's, there's, there's many verses that tell us that, that bring it together. We believe in creation ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Why? Because we have a whole pattern of the scriptures that we've organized under that term that tell us that's how he created it. Okay? Does that make sense? That's the difference. Systematic theology goes through the Bible, pulls it all together in categories. Biblical theology takes it as God gave it. 
just takes it as God gave it. So you see kind of how the two work together. All right? Historical theology. Historical theology, I, I have one in my desk. If you want to know, how did we get the doctrine of, of the sanctification of the saints as we hold to it? Well, you can go to a good historical theologian and look at how the doctrine of sanctification has been taught by the church from the beginning all the way till today. And you can actually identify what stream of belief you're in. That's the work of historical theology. I was talking with Heath, uh, just having a conversation with him before I came in here. And we were talking about Baptist and Anabaptist. There's a huge debate in the Baptist world. Are our roots Anabaptist or are they in the Reformation? It's two different movements. Historical theology tells us that on everything besides baptism, the mode of baptism, not even the meaning. The meaning of baptism comes from Reformation doctrine. But the mode of baptism comes from Anabaptist roots or similar to them. And we would say that's because it's biblical uh, on, on, uh, on our side of the fence, right? So, but, but many people are confused. They think we're Anabaptists. And the problem with that is the only Anabaptists in the world today are Amish, Mennonite, German Baptists. We're not Baptists. Southern Baptists are not Baptists because of Anabaptists. We're all Baptists because of our forefathers who came through the Reformation just after the Reformation, the period just after the Reformation, in England particularly. That's how we got here. Historical theology, when you trace a belief back, will tell you what group of people, you, what tribe, so to speak, you're from. It's helpful as you're studying it and as you're teaching a group of people. You can go through and see how it happened, how, how we developed our thought on this. Pastoral theology is another group. And just to shorten this down, I would say, hey, pastoral theology is how do we deliver the information we've learned in the study to the people? How do we do that? How, how do we communicate it? It's one thing to learn. A lot of people have the knowledge. Not everybody communicates it well, right? So don't you agree all of us pastors need to keep studying pastoral theology? What am I trying to tell you? There's not one discipline of theology. There are many. But biblical theology is the foundation of all the other disciplines. If you want to be certain not to proof text, proof text means to go find a Bible verse, pull it off the page, and teach what you want to teach from that Bible verse. Right? Not teach what the Bible verse teaches, teach what you want to teach. If you want to be certain not to do that, you need biblical theology. Because when you go, and uh, it's, it's, it's very real, because I was talking with my son, said seven-year-olds deal with this very struggle. Last night at the table, we're talking about Moses and the Exodus um, from, from Egypt. And if you read the scripture dealing with that, <clears throat> how were the people saved? How were the people saved? They were saved physically, right? They were brought from Egypt physically, and the salvation, redemption terms are used about them. And so he says, so were all those people Christians? Or were they all, that's his way of thinking, were they all believers? We know they weren't, right? But the, but the, but the terminology is the same. All right? But biblical theology helps us understand why that is, because how is God going to use the Exodus from that point throughout the Bible? Every time that the writers later look back and they want to talk about redemption, what, how, where did, where, what's their picture of redemption? Before Christ. It's the Exodus. 
God was truly, actually delivering the people physically from oppression in slavery, right? But he was building the stage to teach them about his son so that the psalmist can look back and say, teach your children of the redemption of God on Redemption Day. What was Redemption Day for him? The Exodus. Not the coming redemption, but the past redemption. Teach them about that. You see the difference? And so many preachers will take a text in Psalms talking about the day of redemption, and they don't study it in biblical theology, and so now it becomes about the end time. When the writer wasn't thinking about that in the least. He was thinking about what had already happened. They based their faith on God's faithfulness to their people and to them and to keeping his promise. And so that redemption was key, and it's key in our side. Listen, if God had not delivered them, if God had not kept his word to deliver them, that he had delivered to their forefathers, we would have no right to believe he would do the same for us. The exodus is truly important in your life. Okay? And the best way to interpret it is through biblical theology. And that keeps us from making mistakes as we're studying text by text. Okay? Biblical theology is vital to us when we're preparing the sermon. And I just gave you an example of it, so I think that's clear. I mean, you know, you're going to be studying the Bible all of your life, hopefully, and as you're studying it, you need to keep that in perspective. What, where am I at on the revelation of God, the spectrum, the, the path of God revealing himself? Where am I at right here in this passage? Okay? Understanding where that is so that we better understand the context of the passage. You have to have that. Okay? It's also helpful as we take the text and connect it to Christ. Biblical theology helps us then now rightly understanding where we're at in the flow of historical redemption. I can now understand that. So now I can look further down the path from the text back from my perspective and see how God continued his salvation, his revelation of himself into the further. You see how that's helpful? If you just have a systematic theology, and that's all you have, you often have, all you have is the category. You don't know how it fits. Okay? But with the groundwork of biblical theology, uh, then, you, then you have somewhere to root, somewhere to put down roots. If you want to think about this thing, the ground is the foundation, the ground is biblical theology. From that springs systematic theology. The tree of systematic theology grows. And when it flourishes, when, it, when it's at its best, it springs forth fruit known as pastoral theology. Don't ever mistake the mistake of taking the apple and making it the root. Don't ever make the mistake of taking the apple and trying to make it the foundation. Practical pastoral theology is important, but it can't hold up under the weight of full uh, attack, frontal attack. From the world even. Okay? So we need this groundwork laid. It's a guardrail. As I put it there in the notes, it's a guardrail. Biblical theology is to our sermons and our messages from the text. It's a guardrail. Keeps us on track. Keeps us on track. Why would anybody disagree or have an argument about this? I was with uh, Andrew Earlier we were talking about this, and he said, I just don't understand why anybody, what you just said, I, I agree with it, right? What would ever be the struggle? Well, there's a lot of struggles. 
I want to give them to you quickly. The liberal theologians struggle with biblical theology as we see it. Why would that be? Just think with me. A liberal. What, what, why, why would they struggle? They don't think it's inerrant. Most liberal theologians think the Old Testament is a book of fairy tales. They don't find it to be a true history. Why would you spend all of this time building a platform about the context that that verse is in when that didn't even really happen? They don't believe in the Exodus. They don't believe in the miracles on the plains when the quail and the manna fell from heaven. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in the, the uh, healing uh, uh, the healings that occur. They don't, they, just, they, see, they don't believe Jonah was in the belly of a well. They don't believe any of that. So the liberal theologian says it's a waste of time to spend all of this. All we care about is today. Yes, exactly. Yes, and social, you get a lot of social gospelers out of the liberal tradition, right? All that matters is helping somebody today. So that liberals obviously have a problem. They don't believe that what we're studying in the Old Testament actually happened. They see it as unnecessary. Um, but there are evangelicals who face the challenge too. Evangelicals face challenges too. I mentioned it earlier um, Many people in, in, um, in the evangelical camp believe strongly that the Old Testament is the Word of God and that it's historical. But the struggle they would have with what I've just presented as biblical theology is the second half of the definition, which is to take the prism of Christ and look at the Old Testament through Him first. You know, building your thing and then looking at it here. That would be the struggle. They're fine here, but the struggle's over here. Is this, should we look back through Christ at the, or just go back best we can to that setting and teach it the way, say, uh, Isaiah would have taught Deuteronomy only. Okay? And so, again, there's, there's, a, there's a debate in evangelicalism that is healthy and it's interesting to me. I, I keep using him because I respect him. Last year... Together for the, I mean, not together for the gospel. I always get them, we're, that's this year. Last year, the Gospel Coalition had their biannual, their, their every other year conference um, that, that was dealing, they deal with different subjects as a way of bringing people from all over the evangelical world together. Okay? And their uh, topic was the topic I'm teaching you, Christ from the Old Testament. John MacArthur would not go. Christ from the Old Testament. He wouldn't go. He was invited, but he, would, he didn't want to attend. And the reason he wouldn't attend was because he disagreed with D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, um, and others, and the way they approached the subject we're going to be talking about over the next eight weeks. Just, he just wasn't comfortable at the conference. And I respect him for that. But what happened over the course of a year is this thing exploded. All of the evangelical worlds now focused on this topic. And now, is it any mistake that Dr. MacArthur is going to teach what? Christ from the Old Testament. Now, why I say that's healthy is because now we will have his perspective. We need it. We need his perspective. We need these varying views to come to the table and have a discussion together. 
we sharpen one another. Because as I've already said, he will have a biblical approach. He will have a very uh, well-thought-out approach and a very well-organized uh, teaching on the subject. And mainly, that will be because, not, maybe not in the forefront of his mind, but in the back of his mind is, the whole evangelical world's talking about this. And it is a very vital, important subject to the church. I need to deal with it. So, I'm excited that he's dealing with it. And, and I look for, I've listened to three of his, two of his sermons already on it. And uh, I, I've been very encouraged. Very encouraged by them. Yeah, well, what he knew, it wasn't the personalities. What he knew was that they put me in the preaching lineup. <laughs> My way of doing this will be so divergent from what these other guys are doing that the audience themselves will feel the difference. It will be uncomfortable for everybody. He did it out of respect for these men, not disrespect. He wasn't being a spoiled brat, in other words. He wasn't saying, well, y'all won't do what I want, so I'm not coming to your conference. He looked at the slate and said, well, there's, there's ten guys on here, and I know what the topic is. Now, we could talk about a lot of co topics at a conference, and the two of us sit and talk about it, and everybody would amen. But if I go to this thing, it's going to be one and nine others. And so it's going to be obvious when, when, when I get up there and when we have the question and answers, because they always sit in front of the audience and answer questions on a panel. I mean, it, would just, it, could, have been a, it could have been disrespectful for him to go. Oh, but my point is he didn't go to their conference, but now he's teaching his perspective, and we need his perspective. We need to hear from him. Okay? So some of you may hold closer to his perspective. So as I close, I would say, don't give up on me. Don't not come just because you don't agree as we go through this. Keep coming. Listen to the That doesn't mean you have to believe everything I believe. Listen Learn, ask questions, wrestle with it. We'll all be better for that, okay? We may not have time in here to openly discuss these things, but as friends, we'll be able to discuss them as we go, okay? All right. So this is kind of a quick, yes, Yes. Because it tends to put God in a box. Like in other words, and it tries to remove the mystery of like say God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Three versus one. You know, deity versus humanity. All that in other words, that drive to make everything fit neatly into a systematic box. Or at least that's what they perceive <coughs> systematic theology to be, because they may not have been through a training or, training or something. Mm -hmm. then, then they say, well, I don't want to talk about systematic theology. I just want to do the biblical theology. Right. But in reality, they're confusing. You know what I'm trying to yes. say? Yes. At least that's where I hear the discussion. Absolutely. You know, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And um, 11 years ago now, Bob St. John and I, um, talked over this very thing. I mean, he really struggled with systematic theology. 
He was, he was somewhat suspicious of anything called systematic theology. Now, in 11 years, I've seen his resistance or his... Because I would say he always did systematic theology. He always did it. It was just the label that was put on it for him wasn't a good label. It was a mislabel, right? Exactly. And, and it, they gave him the definition Aaron's talking about that systematic theology tends towards being the fruit of one man and his teaching. You're following a person. And, and that's not what systematic theology, not good systematic theology. No, it's bad systematic theology. But. Some, some systematic theology texts came at it from that. that yes. Yeah. Yeah. They focus too much on... Uh, they focus too much. A good systematic theology, I'll just throw one out there. I mean, there's a lot, but we, we pass this one out a lot. A guy like Wayne Grudem, who's built his systematic theology very well in that respect. In other words, he teaches it organized under the categories, goes through the scripture, gives you a ton of information, and he also gives you the alternate perspectives on the topic he's teaching. He doesn't say these people are wrong. He just says, this is another way to view it, this is another way to view it. This is, at the end, he generally says, this is how I view what we're talking about. It doesn't remove the mystery. It doesn't do away with uh, the divergence. And in, in, in in he would say, these are, these are uh, some of them are not Christian perspectives, and some of them are Christian perspectives and just different from mine. Much like I've done, hopefully, with biblical theology, that you understand there's room to disagree inside the spectrum known as evangelical Christian. There's... Room to disagree over these things. Okay? Yes, Jason. Yes. Yeah, because if somebody says, how can I be saved? And you say, through Jesus, you've just done systematic theology. You've put it all under a heading. Jesus saves. And you've used, it's a good way to talk. I mean, my goodness, if we got to go through the whole thing as it's revealed, as I said, and start, well, Come to my house for the next six years. I'm going to talk with you from Genesis to Revelation. And then ask you if you want to believe it or not. I mean, the dude may not have six years. He needs to hear an answer. Systematic theology allows us to do that. But, he, but, a good, but that's good because then hopefully what you've done to get your systematic right is biblical theology. You've spent the time and effort that it takes. Those who 